0: Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loved us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Sunday morning, I have to say Is it? Oh my god, it's (laughs) the first Sunday of September I don't know where y'all thought you was gonna be September 6th but we still in the middle of a quarantine and Everybody thought they was gonna be on their campuses and everybody thought y'all all thought but Here we are adjusting to a crazy different life. Um, Yeah, it's just been such a wild ride uh, since quarantine started in mid-March. And I hope you guys are doing well amidst yet another seasonal transition in the midst of just the complete disturbance of being online and having to do everything remotely or even in person in the midst of quarantine regulations. I hope you guys are doing okay. And if you guys are fatigued through the grief of, and it's possible to be grieving. I I just want to mention this. It's possible for you guys to be grieving the loss of life, Um, not just the literal loss of life, but the loss of your lives as you knew it. It's possible to be grieving that as we go into yet another season. So if you guys are grieving that, just know that the Lord is with you, that our church is with you. And please just reach out to me if you need prayer in any way. Um, Yeah, but one thing that is consistent is that we are going through Acts. And this week we will be going through the second part of Acts 18. The second part of Acts 18. And that'll be um, I believe it's Acts eighteen, twenty-three to twenty-eight. Acts eighteen verses twenty-three or twenty-four through twenty-eight. Acts eighteen, acts is after John, versus twenty-three to twenty-eight. I just want to also say hello. If you guys have noticed anything different about the names in our service today, we've got some of our youngest joining us. The sixth graders are up and now they are in our EC community. Oh, before we read the word of God, I should probably explain. For those of you guys who might be new, who might be hopping in for the first time in forever or... Um, joining us for the first time ever in your life um our community is an english community we are not just youth we are not just college we're not just young adults or families we are a multi-generational community dedicated to the lord dedicated to doing life together so that's a lot yeah. of the members in our community are not just youth a lot of our members a lot of the members in our community are not just adults so uh wish we could have got to know each other in person, but I'm sure the day will come where we can do that together. Okay, Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. We'll be reading God's holy and perfect word, although you guys might not be standing together. Uh, I ask for a complete uh, silence, or if you guys were doing something on your phones, and, or if you guys were you know, eating, just to stop and to give God's word the due reverence it deserves. Acts 18, verse 24. This is the word of the Lord. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, confident in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him, explain to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me together in prayer? Abba, we give you glory for today. We thank you for all that you are all that you continue to do in all of our hearts in our minds god i pray for strength for our congregation members to listen to this i pray god that your grace and mercy would just wash over every single person here god a lot of us are transitioning maybe into youth group maybe into college maybe into young adulthood um, And we're doing that in the midst of this pandemic. And in the midst of that, we're listening to your word. Father God, we thank you that even when we have been faithless in our week, even when we have been distracted in our week, we thank you, God, that you are a faithful God that continues to reach out to us, that continues to point us back to your grace and your mercy. We ask God that as you preach your word, through your mouthpiece, to your congregation members, Father, Lord, that they will be struck in the heart by the reality of the gospel. And God, I pray that you would hide me behind your cross, that only you are magnified and glorified. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for your death. We thank you for your resurrection. We have nothing if it's not for you, Jesus. You are real and we believe in you. So we give you glory. In Jesus' name, my praise. Amen. So, last week, we talked about how God is with you. And how difficult, how difficult it is oftentimes for us to believe that God is with us. Just to recap on our last week, God is with us through every trial. So we must stand firm and believe, not just in him, but believe him. Now, it was an encouraging and challenging message, but we're going to switch gears almost completely Um, as we talk a little bit about Apollos. So I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of context. But before I give you guys context, I want to ask you guys a question what are the primary characteristics of a good leader all right i'm so sorry i'm kind of all over the place this morning but today's sermon title is fat it's an acronym faithful and teachable today's sermon title is fat faithful and teachable are you fat am i fat I don't know. That's what we're going to be talking a little bit about today. And, and, and as we go into our passage today, and as we go into our sermon today, I want to ask you, I want to start off by just asking you guys this question. What are the primary characteristics of a good leader? We're like all around us today in our society, there are good leaders left and right, right? Or bad leaders left and right. They're just leaders around us influencing our lives daily especially in this time more so than ever. What are the primary characteristics of a good leader? Some of you guys might think of man With great power comes great responsibility. Some of you guys might think of, I know I think of, when I think of a good leader, my mind always goes back to Martin Luther King Jr. Um, both a reverend and a leader of our country no one else quite like him, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, and so, when I think about this sentence, the first thing I think about is like, what makes MLK so amazing? Is it, is it you know, his way of speaking well? Is it his... his ideas? Is it his... Own understanding of right and wrong. What makes a good leader good? I want you guys to be chewing on this question as we go through today's sermon. I want to preface the sermon by saying, I am not the one to preach this sermon. It is the Lord's and the Lord's only. And so I have to confess, as your leader, I was like, eh, when I was listening to this sermon, I was like, eh, I don't know if I can preach this, let alone live by this all the time because I am imperfect. But here is God's word for me and for you and for all of us this morning. Okay, so I'm going to go into a little bit of the context. Okay, the context of the condition of Apollos. Now, this is this this little bit about Apollos is a, almost like a pause in the narrative of Acts. The narrative of Acts at this point is taking us through Paul's missionary journey, and I didn't read, but I didn't. I started reading um, verse twenty-four, but in verse twenty-three, actually, it starts off with with explaining, you know, kind of like a. Like, while Paul was doing this, this was what was going on in Ephesus. And and that verse explains a little bit about where Paul was when Apollos is preaching and being refined. And actually, the context of this passage is that Paul starts to do this, instead instead of taking a boat for multiple months or multiple weeks to different regions in Asia Minor, Paul starts to walk for 800 to 900 miles through land. And it's actually a nine-week journey of walking if you include the Sabbaths. Um, A nine-week journey of walking just to get to different churches that had been established through his missionary journey along the way. And so he takes this one moment in, in life, this teased, arduous moment, to just kind of check in on everybody make sure they're okay. And in the midst of that, while that is all going on, Apollos gets to Ephesus. Now, where is Ephesus? Okay? So, Apollos gets to Ephesus. Ephesus is actually, I don't know if you guys know, there's a book in the Bible named Ephesians. And Ephesians is actually Paul's letters to the church of Ephesus. Now, what is Ephesus? What is the city Ephesus? The city Ephesus is actually named after a Greek goddess, Artemis Ephesia. And it's one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It starts booming economically, does super duper well, and the primary religion in Ephesus is the dominant cult of Artemis. It's namesake. There are like multiple feasts and traditions and entire like extravaganzas multiple year, multiple times a year in the name of Artemis. And so it's a very, it's a city that is marked by Roman prosperity in particular. And it is a city that is marked wherever Greek and Roman culture is widely spread. There's also a very big emphasis on rhetoric. There's a big emphasis on teaching and doing soliloquies, dramatized, logical arguments. Almost a, a lawyering, so to speak, of philosophy. And all of that kind of is a undergirding theme in the culture of Ephesus when Apollos gets to it. Now, who is Apollos? We are introduced with this young man, this young, very, very charismatic man named Apollos. Now, who is Apollos? The first thing we learn about Apollos is, Apollos is a Jew. He is one of the chosen ones, so to speak. He's not a Gentile, he's a Jew. And he is a native of Alexandria. Now this is important to know. Alexandria is a city in Egypt, which is a part of Northern Africa. It is known as a Mecca of knowledge at this point, a Mecca of science, and philosophy and learning built up by Alexander the Great at this point the Greek Empire has fallen to Rome right to the Roman Empire so Alexander the Great is not the primary guy at this time but it's Alexandria still lives in the legacy of knowledge it is still a Mecca of learning and he is a native of Alexandria so the first thing we learn is that Apollos is a Jew the second thing that we learn is that Apollo is a native of Alexandria. It doesn't necessarily say that he's a citizen, but he is a native of Alexandria. And not only that, he is both learned and cultured. It is one thing to be learned, like you could be learned, particularly and probably in the Jewish synagogues, he was probably learned with, with scriptural learning, In Alexandria, there was lots and lots of that. So he was probably learned in the things of the Bible, but he was also cultured, which means he had grown up to be very, very well-versed in the culture of the time, the Greek-Roman paradigm of the time. Paradigm is a thought. It's like a worldview, like a perspective. You know, we live in an enlightenment perspective, and... Apollos was very well acquainted with the culture of the time. Which means that he was, if he is both learned and cultured, what the original language, what scripture is trying to say is that Apollos is very well versed in rhetoric. He's a really, really, really good speaker. He's the kind of speaker where if you listen to him for long enough, you'll believe in the things that he's saying, even if he's saying that the world is flat. You know those people that are really, really good at talking, where even if they're saying the most ridiculous things, a lot of people fall for it. I don't know. There are a lot of examples of that in our country right now. But um, Apollos was very well versed in language. But one thing that is important to know, and this is this is a very important thing to know, it's that Apollos was filled. With the Holy Spirit, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was accurately preaching and teaching Jesus, even though he only knew the baptism of John. Alright, James, what does that mean? I'm going to break it down just a little bit, not too much for you guys, but just a little bit, okay? He was already accurate in preaching the way of Jesus, even though he only knew the baptism of John. What does it mean? that Apollos only knew the baptism of John, it means that Apollos was only baptized with water. If you guys remember, if you guys can remember back to Sunday school or whatever it was that you did Bible study and whatever it was that you read through scripture, who came before Jesus in the New Testament? Who is the first person to preach in the New Testament? It's John the Baptist. He was the one that was sent by by God before Jesus to start baptizing people and to preach one message and one message alone. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And Apollos had heard the teaching of not John the disciple, but John the Baptist, and was baptized, not necessarily with the Holy Spirit, but he was baptized with water. And yet, he was accurately teaching Jesus Christ. How How can you accurately preach Jesus if you didn't even hear the message of Jesus, you heard the message of John the Baptist? The clue of that is in the fact that Apollos was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when it says filled with the Spirit, it it doesn't say that it was the Holy Spirit in the English but in the original language, the assumption is that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit was instructing and informing his teaching of other people. Now, how can Apollos know Jesus just by the baptism of John? Yes, it was also that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see here, That it's not necessarily Apollos' learning that qualifies him to be a leader, but it's Apollos being filled by the Holy Spirit that qualifies him to be a leader. Actually, before I move into the next thing, I want to pause right there. It was not Apollos' learning. It was not Apollos' wisdom. It was not Apollos' knowledge that allowed him to be a good leader, to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was Apollos being filled and... Sent by the Holy Spirit your knowledge means nothing it means nothing when it comes down to it what matters is not what you know it is the power of Christ within you empowering you and sending you out a lot of times we might let Like, I I get the question a lot, should a pastor be required to go to seminary? Some of y'all might think this is blasphemy, but I got got asked this question a lot coming from, like, the conservative background that I grew up in, and, you know, we often listen to people based, based on their learning. Oh, you have a PhD? Oh, I can listen to you. You've come out with many, many books, John MacArthur. I can listen to you, right? But you have to understand that it is not learning that qualifies us to be leaders. It is the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us for God's glory. As we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it is God that works in us and through us For his glory. And so we see here that although Apollos has the best kind of learning possible, it is not necessarily his learning that qualifies him, although it comes in handy. It is the power of the Holy Spirit within him. Does that mean that learning is bad? Definitely not. Apollos' learning is clearly very, very important here. And I I want to emphasize that Apollos, what makes Apollos, one of the things that Apollos did really well is refute Jews buy the scriptures and make a case for Christ that was eloquent and airtight. And that only comes with really delving into the scriptures and learning. So yes, it is important to learn. But at the same time, what qualifies Apollos is not his learning, it's not his resume, it's not his experience, and not what he has achieved, but it is the spirit. But it's not just by the power of the Holy Spirit that Apollos knew the baptism of John. I mean, yes, it is fully by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's one more element of it that I do want to specify before we move into the main chunk of this passage. Apollos only listened to John's teaching. It's very highly unlikely, because Apollos was only baptized in the baptism of John the Baptist, it's highly unlikely that Apollos actually got to hear the full gospel after Jesus died and resurrected. It was more that Apollos and his faith was based on John the Baptist and Mm -hmm. had heard the fulfillment of the words of John the Baptist later on. So his primary theological center was not necessarily the teaching of the apostles or the 12 disciples of Jesus, but it was the teaching of John the Baptist. So how can Apollos know the way of Jesus accurately just by the baptism of John then? It's because he wasn't necessarily trusting in the baptism of John, but he was trusting in the reality of John's message about Christ. A little bit about this is actually, we we are clued in a little bit about this in the beginning of Acts 19. I'm going to read a little bit of this for you. Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while apostles, uh, Ap- Ap- Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. That's one chapter 19, right after this, verses 1 through 3. And what we are clued in a little bit about these other disciples who, unlike Apollos, didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. Through the baptism of John, we see here that Apollos is special. How come Apollos, as opposed to other people, were able to accurately take away Christ from the message of John the Baptist? And as we look at these other people who were so caught up in the baptism of John that they could not understand the message of Christ, we see that Apollos was trusting, not in the reality of John, not in the reality of John's message, but he was trusting in the reality of Christ. It is possible for us as believers to look at the message of Christ. It is possible for us as believers to look at the message of a leader and not at Christ. It is possible for us to get so caught up in the theology and the teaching and the character of a leader that we lose the message of Christ himself. Now John's message was real. And when the message is real, some might come to believe in the power of Jesus through the witness of another. That is the crux of evangelism. And it's honestly the crux of youth ministry. It's the the crux of ministry is often through the witness of another person, through the worship of some people. Others are ushered into a space of openness of the presence of God. What... And when the message is real, some might come to believe in the power of Jesus through the witness of a good leader. But it is possible for you to look at the leader and misunderstand the message because you're too busy looking at the leader that you ain't looking at God. One really good mark of that in a church is when a church falls apart after a pastor leaves. When a church Becomes more heavily dependent on a leader than on God, and that leader is dethroned, and I use the word dethroned because at that point there is an enthroning, because the only due leader is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But when a ministry is able to fall apart completely, and I, and I don't, I'm not saying you know be discouraged and wrestle because when a, when a leader and a shepherd figure leaves of course it's going to be difficult but when a, when a church completely unravels at the seams that might be because some might be coming to believe in the power of the leader and the power of the leader might speak to the power of Christ more than the power of Christ speaks to the power of the leader do you are you are you, are you, are you tracking with me here so Apollos was able to actually capture the message of John the Baptist without overvaluing John's baptism to the point where he was missing the point, unlike other people. And so Apollos, even though he has only heard the foretelling of Jesus Christ, and has heard not not, through, not in its entirety, but in some level, the fulfillment of the message of John the Baptist, Apollos is able to preach Accurately, the way of Christ, because he was not looking at Paul, but he was looking at God. I and mean, he was not looking at John, but he was looking at God. And so that's, that's what we see in Apollos. That Apollos believed in the message of the gospel and not John himself. He didn't believe in John. He believed in what John was preaching. He didn't believe in John. He believed in the man that John believed in. So the first thing we see about Apollos as an excellent leader, because Apollos is defined through this passage, he is venerated as an excellent leader. But the first thing we see about Apollos is that before he was an excellent leader, he was a spirit-filled follower. That he was internalizing the message of Jesus Christ, not as the message of Jando. Not as the message of another pastor. Not as the message of John Piper or Matt Chandler or Tim Keller. But as the message of Christ. And it was the power of Christ that spoke to the mouthpiece. More than the power of the mouthpiece spoke to the engaging nature of the gospel. So the first thing we can learn from Apollos is how good he was at being a student. Another thing to note is that it wasn't his learning that informed his faith, like his cultural learning. It wasn't Alexandria that informed his faith. It was the Holy Spirit. So Apollos is this really cool guy, He's probably pretty, I don't want to say he's probably pretty good looking, but he's probably a very charismatic, like easy on the eyes kind of guy, very easy to follow him, you know what I mean? Like one of those born to be leaders. He's clearly really smart. He's really good with his words and people follow him easy. Now he goes into Ephesus, this Apollos, this excellent student and pupil of John, this rising leader who is fervent in the Holy Spirit, he goes into Ephesus and he starts preaching boldly about the scriptures. And Priscilla and Aquila hear him. Now I mentioned that y'all should keep note of Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila actually first showed up last week when Paul first gets to where he was. Priscilla and Aquila, he, he, um, he links up with Priscilla and Aquila because they are tent makers, and Apostle Paul does tent making with them for a couple of years. So it's the Priscilla and Aquila that made tents with Paul. Okay? So, Apollo starts to preach boldly in the temples in Ephesus about the scriptures. Priscilla and Aquila hear him, and they're like, oh, nah. Although this guy is fervent by the Holy Spirit, What's coming out of his mouth is incomplete. They hear him. And then they pull him aside. I want to break down Priscilla and Aquila a little bit. Before I break down Apollos. Because I think that this Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos exchange is one of the most important things that a Christian can learn from. Okay? So Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside. Let me just... That in and of itself, a lot of pastors miss the mark. A lot of leaders miss the mark when it comes to this. Man, first thing off the bat, Priscilla and Aquila show pastoral sensitivity in the way that they pursue private conversation about where a pulse is wrong. Chef's kiss. Not a lot of people do that. Sometimes we think that it's appropriate to call people out in public, and I, if if I've ever called you out in public before, and it was a it was meant to be a joke, but then it ended up being so much more. I, I apologize, my pastoral insensitivity. Um, but there's so much sensitivity here that Priscilla and Aquila hear this guy starting to preach boldly in the synagogue in front of a lot of people, and instead of being like, actually you're wrong, they're like, okay okay okay, we gotta we gotta get you over here. We gonna talk to you right here. And they start to explain to him the scriptures. How pastorally sensitive. Scripture says that they start to inform him and reteach him, like correct him about the way of God. The way of God, if you look at the original language, it specifies that this way of God is the path of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. what priscilla and aquila are doing are they're like oh apollos you're right but the crux of your message is not necessarily fully centered and so they're taking apollos's excellent message and they're re-centering him not on the baptism of john but on the death and resurrection of jesus christ y'all gotta keep in mind though these guys are not as learned as Apollos, they are tent makers. In the ways that they start to reteach him, the way of God, in the way that they start to elaborate on the gospels, they are gracious and humble in their explanation. So the first thing we see here is that Priscilla and Aquila, with grace and discernment and wisdom, pull Apollos aside. And they're not like, yo, Apollos, you were wrong. They just start to correct him, just slowly correcting him from his ways. And we see here that this excellent pupil And student of John, Apollos, this perfect guy, this perfect leader type, although Apollos' teaching was accurate, and although he was filled with the Holy Spirit, his knowledge of the scriptures was incomplete. So even though he was an excellent leader, even though he was filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, his knowledge of the Bible was incomplete complete but he was teachable apollos was teachable now y'all might be wondering at this point okay so does that mean that apollos is blaspheming Was Apollos blaspheming, even though he was an excellent leader, easy on the eyes, charismatic, well-learned, and cultured, and fervent with the Holy Spirit? But was he blaspheming because his message was incomplete? He might have been saying some incorrect things, and those things are, it definitely is problematic when a leader is teaching something that is not necessarily in line fully with the Word of God. But his heart was aligned to the Lord and aligned to Christ, and he was reflecting elements of repentance and grace and forgiveness in his life already. Because at this point, it is assumed by even Luke, the author of this this book, that Apollos is indeed born again saved. Priscilla and Aquila could have been legalistic as heck. And they could have shamed him. They could have denounced him. Because he had spoken publicly to so many people already. They could have said, they could have like loud spoke on radios and televisions and and through mail, whatever it took. If you've ever heard the way of Apollos, he's wrong. but they don't do that. They don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Instead, they go directly to Apollos, pull him aside, and start speaking to him about Jesus' death and resurrection and the completion of the gospel that Apollos is preaching on. We see here one important element. When somebody is theologically incomplete, The reaction is not to shame them and to burn them at a stake. But it's to meet in the middle. It's to learn together. It's to have healthy and important conversations so that all of God's people are made better for. Why is this important? Why is it important that Apollos, even though he might have been saying things that were borderline heretical because he hadn't known everything, why is it important in the... To note the way that Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos have this conversation. Because our world today, we don't really do this very well. It's a classic, like, I don't mean to bring up names. But it is a classic, like, Stephen Furtick, John Piper scenario. Now, Stephen Furtick and John Piper are two pastors that y'all might have heard before. Stephen Furtick leads Elevation Church the church that elevation worship is a part of and john piper leads i believe it's bethlehem um in missouri and john piper is a reformed christian and Stephen furtick is a non-denominational contemporary cool pastor kind of guy um but actually, both of these guys are in the same denomination. Did you know that? Both of these churches, they're in the same denomination. Both of these pastors are Southern Baptist pastors. Ain't that interesting? It's not that John Piper is in the recesses of Presbyterianism. John Piper's a Baptist. And so is Stephen Furtick. they both Baptists. So they're both in the same family. Right? But there is an apprehension in the church these days about theology that has gone so far that we have completely lost the spirit of correction and unity in the body of Christ. A lot of pastors and a lot of teachers and a lot of people on either end some people on the end of elevation might think oh those people are legalistic pharisees and the people who are reformed might say those people are not living by the word of god they're committing heresy all the damn time and both parties might draw upon a biblical basis for their complete debasing of the other side like if you know one thing about the church these days is that it's that if you don't agree if you don't agree on the same things you don't really mix well and people say oh it's because of titus and titus a leader should be beyond reproach a leader should know the scriptures Other people might quote John, God is spirit, and if you're not worshiping in spirit, you're not worshiping God. And they, you might, there might be biblical basis for these arguments. But the real biblical basis of an argument, or not an argument, a conversation about theology and correction is right here. Apollos is filled with the right Holy Spirit. He wasn't saying all the right things. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know why? It's because God doesn't need for us to know him completely for him to enter into our hearts. We might have some things wrong about God, but we can still know God. God wants, Because our salvation is not based on our understanding of scripture. If our salvation was based on how much we knew scripture, then none of us would be saved because we are all fallen short of the glory of God. But it is God's grace to come to us. Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. While we were turned the other way. How much more so, God doesn't need us to know him fully and understand his ways. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That's what it says. I'm pretty sure it's Isaiah. That doesn't change just because you're saved. It's not like all of a sudden your thoughts are with God's thoughts and your to are with God's ways. His ways are still higher. It is by the grace of God that we can receive him even when we might not fully know him. And so even though Apollos wasn't always saying the right things, and maybe his the way that he was preaching God was too much based off of his experience and off of what he had heard and what he had been taught. But the Holy Spirit within him was real, and he was indeed born again. Priscilla and and Aquila sees Apollos, not as a heretic, but he sees Apollos as the fervent, God-fearing man that he was, shows grace for his theological failings, pulls him aside, and starts to speak into his life, and starts to share the way of the salvation of life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think of that—the the past, the sheer pastoral sense. Priscilla and Aquila are not are not pastors; they are seen to be. They might be missionaries. It's some theologians speculate actually that Priscilla, a woman, is the author of Hebrews. There's there's no full basis of it, but it, it is it is speculated. By some, not by all. Priscilla is a powerful woman. She's uh, she's Her name comes before Aquila for a reason. Her name comes before her husband for a reason. Um, she's a powerful woman in the spirit. And yet we see the pastoral sensitivity here that doesn't exist anymore in our society, in our day-to-day. So that's one thing to keep in mind. These tent makers, they are able to engage in theological conversation that is gracious and loving and corrective. But it's not just Priscilla and Aquila that are important here, but it's the heart of Apollos that is also important here. See, Apollos was learned. He is a native Alexandrian, and these guys are tent makers. it's like if an undergrad student was trying to teach a phd it's like if an undergrad student was trying to correct their professor ain't nobody gonna do that but more than that ain't no professor gonna take that this man was both learned and cultured But he was teachable. He was teachable. And once he was able to learn better from the gospel, uh, learn the gospel in a better way through Priscilla and Aquila, he went out, he was sent out to Achaia by the church. He didn't just go out on his own, by the way. The church sent him out to serve And he was able to be a bold and fearless leader. Luke characterizes the ministry of Apollos through three things. Assisting the other believers to be be able to grow and persevere. So Apollos was a great strength, a great source of strength for the believers in Achaia. The second thing was his words were... His... His mission of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ was both vigorous and public. Apollos was passionately and publicly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was a, and finally, he was demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus is Messiah. So the three things about Apostles' ministry. First, he was assisting the other believers to grow and persevere. He was vigorously and publicly proclaiming the gospel, and he was demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus is Messiah. Here we see that Apollos was pastoral, he was assisting the other believers and helping the other believers to persevere. He was vigorously and publicly proclaiming the gospel, This consistency in his teaching and in his pastoral life. And he was demonstrating not from his experience, not from the culture, but from the scriptures that Jesus is Messiah. Although, It is not the necessary requirement to be learned to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is important that we study the scriptures to know what God's word says, and not just make things up, but to be rooted and grounded in the word of God, the holy and active living word of God. So once he was able to learn the gospel— from these two people that might be perceived as less than him, he was able to be sharpened like a razor blade edge to be able to do things pastorally, to be able to do things rhetorically for the kingdom of God based on the scriptures. And Apollos becomes this seasoned leader. But in order for Apollos to get to the point where he can be a seasoned leader, He had to get over being defensive. It's easy for any of us and all of us to get defensive. I would say it's probably one of the most difficult things about Christians today. We are all, and even if y'all don't admit it to me, y'all gotta admit it to yourselves, alright? Everybody who's listening to this right now can get defensive. Okay, including myself. You don't have to admit to me, I am not God. But Jesus is watching, you know. <laughs> Hanani was right here, you know what I'm saying? Don't lie to God. All of us can get defensive, and it's easy to get defensive. Defensiveness has to do with pride, It has to do with, or that's like the easy, I would say actually that saying that defensiveness is based on pride is, is, is the cop-out. Don't be prideful. Don't be defensive. That's a cop-out. You can oversimplify defensiveness to be about pride, defending your pride and your honor. But I think it goes deeper than that, especially when it comes to faith. For me, in my own experience, when I get defensive, oftentimes it means that I have to defend myself from somebody or something. When I get defensive, it's less than my pride is hurt, and it's more that I feel attacked or cornered. Or maybe I feel like I am not as secure and need to say something back. Apollos was able to not be defensive and he was able to be secure because he was secure in Christ. Because even if people are saying, hey, what you're preaching isn't completely right, even if people are saying, hey, what you're trying to do here, it isn't completely right. I see you, I see your heart, but it's not completely right. That doesn't attack his identity in Christ. Being wrong doesn't mean you're any less close to God or any less anointed or any less loved by God and by God's people. Needing correction, it speaks only to your humanity. But oftentimes, especially for me, like I'm a I'm a female pastor um, that comes from a conservative background. So a lot of people that I love might not believe that I should be a pastor. Now, I don't blame them because I was complimentary. Um, But obviously it hurts when people question my calling. So it, it's easy for me at that point to get defensive in front of other people. But what I have learned over the past three years is that I would need to be, I would need to defend myself if I was the basis for my calling. But what is, what is the point of being defensive when I am not the one who does the calling and I'm not God? If it is truly God that has given me my calling, if it is truly God that has saved my life, that has set me free, that has placed me where I am right now, it doesn't matter who I am. I am free to be corrected, and I am free to improve by learning Because I am not here because I'm qualified. I'm becoming qualified because I was called. And I am not the one who does the calling. It's about God. There's no need for me to get defensive about what I know about God and what I don't know about God. If I feel like I'm being misunderstood, I might clarify. But there's no reason for me to get defensive about being wrong, because it's okay to be wrong. You're not loved anymore when you're right. You're not even expected to be right all the time. In fact, you can't be right all the time. Whether you're a pastor, whether you're a lay leader, it doesn't matter. There's no reason to get defensive. Being wrong doesn't mean you're any less close to God or any less anointed or loved by God and by God's people. Being corrected doesn't mean you're any less capable as a person, as a sister, a brother, a mother, a father, a son or a daughter, and as a human being. It just means you're human. But God has regarded our estate and has become our humble king on our behalf. And has befriended imperfect people like us and has reconciled us back to God through His death and through His resurrection. Our worth, our position is only based on the power and the authority of God. And that frees us to not always be right. To be able to take a hit. To be able to Be corrected. When we get defensive, it's not just because we are being prideful. It's because we feel criticized. We feel attacked. But nobody's trying to say that you're a bad person when you're being corrected about what you know about God or about how you lead people or about how you can be better. By God's love, no longer does any criticism mean criticism anymore. There is no way for people to criticize you and for people to tear you down in a way that is substantial and real. Because your security, your worth and your value as a person, as a member of the body of Christ, as a leader, is based on Christ alone. And that doesn't mean you get cocky about it. I am the only person that can speak into my calling. No, no, no. It actually, security in Christ, true security in Christ, doesn't lead you to be standoffish and listen to nobody anymore and say, oh, I'm only going to take my orders from Christ because Christ is the one that deceived me. So now my pastor can't speak into my life and the people that I love can't speak into my life. I'll take their suggestions maybe. Being secure in your identity in Christ doesn't lead you to be, for lack of a better word, a prick. It leads you to be teachable. Because you don't have to protect yourself anymore. Now Priscilla and Aquila are not pastors. One thing to note here is that a pastor and a leader was taken from lay leaders, deacons. They were basically like deacons, missionaries, like very sidelines kind of people. um, And taking that person's advice in. This tells us that the authority of God to do this doesn't just rest on people like me. But God gives you the space to be able to discern for yourself what is correct and what is not as well. But if your correction is steeped in righteousness based on that knowledge, and if your correction, if somewhere in your heart you're thinking that you are more mature spiritually because of the fact that you can catch this, or that you mean more to God, I trust that nobody would think that. But if that, if you're thinking like maybe you're more mature spiritually, or that this person needs to be corrected, they don't need to be, number one, corrected by you. And if spiritual maturity was based on knowledge, then you and I wouldn't be able to be. We are all lifting each other up and walking down this race together. I say this to you all the time, but I am no better than you. And the authority that has been given me and the power that has been given me on heaven and on earth has been given to you just as much as it has been given to me. That is the nature of the gospel. Just like life or death, it is an equalizer. But when our identity It's actually founded in Christ and no longer hierarchical. That's when we can fully be teachable to one another. But if you still feel wounded, I want you to ask yourself why? What is wounded in that situation? Your calling? Your identity in Christ? Technically, you are only better through construction. And we see here an excellent leader that was able to internalize excellent wisdom from an unlikely person and and, and who allowed that, that wisdom to chisel them into the leader that God had created them to be. God refines us not just through spiritual seasons But he refines us through people. Proverbs says, iron sharpens iron. Now what can we take away from all of this? We can learn from both Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. I asked you a question in the beginning of this passage. What makes a leader great? What makes a leader great is teachability. The ability of a leader to sit in them being wrong and allow that correction to work on us is what makes a leader great. Now, I want to point out, but Jane though sometimes people do criticize. Like, you're not addressing the fact that people can't actually criticize and wound you. I am not at all using this to justify the way that people might have hurt you with their words and and torn you down. If there are people in your life that are knocking you off the position that God has placed you in, if there are people that are tearing you down and saying you're not, and specifically, one way to discern this is tearing down your worth, or dismissing you, not regarding your words as real or as substantial, not giving you the respect and dignity that you deserve, if there are people in your life that are doing that for you right now, then I think that it's important for you to filter that out. Um, And what I mean by filter that out is not to burn bridges, but it's to have enough discernment to know that that doesn't, your worth is not placed in the words of other people. Your worth is placed in God and God alone. And so you have every reason to lean on God. And you have every reason to be able to find your identity in God and God alone. So if there's somebody, that is being critical to you in a way that is harming you or unhealthy or it's really hurting you, this is not the situation where it's about teachability. That's about hurt. And that's about healing. So that's a completely other situation. If there are people in your life that are speaking into your life in a way that is straight up toxic, don't apply this sermon into that. Okay? I'm talking about, just specifically about the ways that people might not see eye to eye completely about the gospel, and the ways that we might be imperfect or incomplete in our leadership, the ways that we might we might need more improvement, and the ways that God places godly people in our lives to speak into our lives to help us to grow. That is what I'm speaking of, not on, yeah, not on verbal abuse or. Or, or very toxic conversations. That, those are. That's a line I must draw. Discern that for yourself, okay? Um, and use, using scripture, using scripture to discern that for yourself. But what makes a lead, a leader great is teachability. And here we can apply from both Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. The title of this passage, uh, the title of this sermon is Fat. It was a, um, it was a ret- retreat theme. We, I had, I used to go on something called Youth Emmanuel. It was like, it was a rise for my generation back in, like, New York. Like, 20-some different churches gathering together. Um, and uh, it was one of the themes. I think it was my, I think it was seventh grade. Uh, I was like, that's 2007. Jesus, that might be when some sixth graders were born, right? Okay, let's not think about that. Let's not think about that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay, but there was, like, I remember at, during that time of, uh, okay, during that time of life, people like to use acronyms for retreat themes. I don't know if it was like that in New England, but I remember one, one time, one retreat theme was swag. I don't remember what it stood for, but it was swag. I have a retreat shirt that says swag. It, it was about God. It was about God. Something about standing with God or something. Um, yeah, it was something. It was something about grace. I don't know. I'm not fully, I don't fully remember. But I remember fat. Because we walked around all of that retreat, like, we would be on Naya College's campus walking back and forth, and I would be with my small group, uh, my small group members, and we would just be asking each other, are you fat yet? <laughs> um, um, it was a joke, but it stuck with me all throughout my life. As a 25-year-old pastor, I still remember that retreat theme: faithful and teachable. And within that, within that identity as being faithful and teachable, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions before we go into prayer. Are you willing to be corrected or sharpened, or will you continue to be a blunt force? Are you willing? To be corrected or sharpened, knowing that your identity, your value, your effectiveness, your worth as a leader is based on God and not on your ability. I know, so countercultural. The world says you have to be the most perfect person in order to be successful. But in the eyes of God, your worth is defined in what God has created you to be, not what you are. Your worth is defined in what God has done for you. Not even in what God has created you to be, but what God has done for you to reconcile himself to you. And he doesn't look at you and see your imperfection. He looks at you and sees the beautiful creation that he created. With that understanding, with that security, are you willing to be corrected and sharpened? Or will you continue to be a blunt force? The second question, are you willing to look at Jesus and not at the messenger? In order to be a good leader, you need to be a good learner. Are you willing to look at Christ and not at Jacob? Are you willing to let yourself be informed by the message of Jesus and not in the pastors in your life or the leaders in your life or the leaders that you've seen that define this generation today? Are you trying to be Tim Keller Or are you trying to be like Jesus? What are you trying to be like? Are you trying to be like the leaders that came before you? Are you trying to base your leadership and be the next best? The only person I can think of is Eric Yang right now. Eric Yang? Or are you Willing to receive the message and let the message inform the way you look at your messenger? Are you willing to believe and have faith that Jesus is with you and that your worth is so much greater? than what you can do because Jesus is with you? Are you willing to believe in have faith that Jesus is with you just as much as he was with John, just as much as he was with Eric, just as much as he was with me? Even if you're not always perfect, or even if you're not always right about him, are you willing to believe that God is with you just as much as he's with me? Are you willing to internalize that for your life? And last but not least, definitely not least if there is somebody in your life that you feel the need to correct don't correct them without grace who are you to do that? who am I to do that? who are we to do them? we ain't God and what we think and know about people isn't everything it can't be If it were, then you'd be worshiping yourself. You don't have the right to correct people on the scriptures and on God without grace. Don't allow yourself to abuse God's word like that. Just because you think the wrong thing is being said about God. The word of God is not a tool that you can wield to cut into other people's hearts. The word of God is not a power that you can just manipulate like that. If you're going to feel the need to correct somebody and it'll come because there will be people in your life that might not be saying the right thing about God on a larger or greater scale. Remember that we ought to fear God. Not fear God and be afraid of him. But understand who he is and how much power he wields. And not put ourselves on a pedestal. We do not have the right to correct somebody without grace. That's a lot. For all of our sixth graders, I am so sorry that this is your first sermon in youth group. Um, But I hope that it can be a real teaching point. As you move forward, your identity, your value as a person, as a Christian, is based on God. Let's learn to love one another through difficult situations, through differing opinions, in a godly way. Let's be fat together. Would you join me in prayer? For those of you guys who this might be your first time, it's just we're just bowing our heads together, and we're lifting up our own prayer to God because before we do corporate prayer together because learning how to pray to God on our own is super important. So let's take a moment to pray with your own words. Maybe you've written down these questions but I'm going to ask these questions to you one more time. And Why don't you pray to God about them? Number one, are you willing to be corrected and sharpened? Or will you continue to be a blunt force? Are you willing to believe and have faith that Jesus is with you? Just as much as Jesus is with leaders, even if you're not always right about him even if you're not always perfect, that Jesus is with you? Are you willing to correct people with grace? Are you willing to look to God and not at the messenger? Are you willing to lean and trust God for your security? North Boston, this is going to be the fight of our life. Because we as a church can easily lean on our leaders, on our pastors, more than we do on God. Are you willing to look at Jesus, not at the messenger? Are you willing to believe in the message and that that message is just as much for you as it is for the messenger. Even if there's no sign of that in your life right now. Even if there's no sign. Right now. Are you willing to believe and have faith? Let's take some passive. first. From wherever you are listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.